The following presentation is part of a six-week class titled Introduction to Mindfulness. The class is offered at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome back, everyone. I wanted to begin tonight, uh, like I did last week, just uh, adding on to the basic instructions. And then uh, we'll sit for a while, and then we'll see what people have been noticing in their practice at home. So, generally in the meditation experience, we're uh, beginning in a way that's easiest for us. So, we take something like the experience of the body sitting or the breath moving in the body because it's relatively accessible and uh, it sort of allows us to train the mind to connect and have some continuity with that mindful presence. But uh, as you know, a lot of what's happening isn't just sensations. We've got this whole Let's call it the internal world of thought and emotion. So tonight, in terms of adding on to the instructions, we're going to invite ourselves to be more mindful, to notice this internal world of emotion specifically. And next week, again, we'll continue that. Now, we still use the anchor of the body sitting or the breath in the body. This is the place where we come back. It's. Uh, it's like our good friend. It's trustworthy. We can get to know it. We can create a good habit so that the mind, believe it or not, instead of going off to worry or to planning or to comparing, it just comes back to the breath because now that's its habit, just to come back to the experience of the body. This is one of the best habits that we can develop. Instead of the mind looking for something to get lost in, you know, to think about politics or think about our money or, which is what we, as soon as there's a gap, you know, as soon as we have a little space, it's interesting where our mind goes. I mean, you can even just, like when you're in your car and you don't really have to be 100% attentive to the driving process, what does your mind do? Or if you're waiting in line at the checkout line, what does your mind do? What is what is the mind's tendency? So in the first couple of weeks, and now for the next, hopefully, years and years, we're developing this really wholesome habit, this good friendship, so that the mind is just inclined to come back to the experience of the body sitting, come back to the experience of the breath and the body. But we understand now that we're not coming back to the breath because we're afraid to notice what else is going on in the moment. So even though at first there is this real intention to be with the breath, we value its friendship, we value its, its importance, like to learn to connect and sustain. But now, even though we're still beginners, we want to start noticing that sometimes it's appropriate to notice the emotion to notice the mood or attitude that's present, to notice the not so much the content of the thoughts, but the, the particular texture, like what's the 
texture of the thoughts? Are they agitated or calm? You know, are they lustful, all about greed or all about aversion? Or are they about contentment, about letting things be? And what are the qualities, what is the shape of the mind, you could say? So this is uh, just another world, another place to be mindful. Like, for example, right now. What is the shape or texture or quality of the mind or mood or attitude now? And if the immediate answer is, well, there ain't anything happening in the mind, you know, that... So is that feeling like, does your mind feel dead or numb? Because that's a mood or an attitude. Or does it feel interested, alive, bright? Are you bored? Are you interested? Are you wishing you were home? So you, all these things, all these different qualities, if we're not mindful of them, this is the basic principle. Things that are happening in the present moment that we're not mindful of are having an effect on our lives, but we're not aware of that. And, and in a sense, we have no choice but to react in the way the mind's conditioned to react. So if we see something really attractive and we're not mindful, we're going to crave that really attractive thing, even if it's just a memory or a, a thought about you know the new thing we want. Then we're going to crave it because we didn't realize that there's an attractive thing in the mind. But if we realize this attractive thing arising as a memory or as a thought, then we're likely to notice the craving as something happening in the mind. And with the mindfulness of the mind or the mindfulness of attitude and mood and emotion, naming or labeling can be really useful. It's like uh, when you make a mental label, when you say in your mind silently, oh, fear, fears like this, it's like you've created this frame, like you put a frame around a photograph, you create the frame and it just allows the mind that sees or the mind that knows to look right at what it is that's predominant. It sort of highlights it. And it sort of distinguishes it from other things that you could be paying attention to. And it says, no, this is how the mind is now. It's like this. So when you say fear, it's just fear. It's like you're putting a little frame and it allows you to really look at it. Oh, it's just this emotion. It's just this mind state. And it's like this. Oh, numbness. Or restlessness. Or doubt. So... When we're sitting tonight, generally speaking, you know, we sit, we develop a certain uh, comfort and stability in the posture, feeling grounded as best we can, establish this intention to be mindful with the breath, with the body. And so there is this very clear, strong intention to be with the breath. But either when, the, either when uh, we find ourselves falling away from the breath of the body over and over again, then you might just ask, what? You can literally say that in your mind, what? As if you're asking, well, what else is happening? What else is drawing the attention? Or how come 
the attention doesn't rest with the experience of the breath. There must be something disturbing the attention to the breath. What is that? So we're kind of opening up a little bit, having a bigger space or bigger frame. Okay, what? And what we're actually going to look at then is the mind or the heart. Like, what is its shape or texture or quality? What's the mood? What's going on? So try that when you're finding it difficult to be with the breath, to develop continuity, don't be afraid to just take a moment and to look at the mind. What's happening? What else is happening? So you're kind of uh, inviting, bringing some curiosity. I don't remember if I gave you the acronym RAIN. Did I go through that last week? So remember, basically what I've been encouraging us to do is to just reflect on two qualities. We're cultivating alertness and relaxation. And RAIN is just another way of looking at the different aspects of mindfulness practice, of meditation, mindfulness meditation. So instead of just alertness and relaxation, we have R, which is to recognize clearly what's predominant. So either the breath or an emotion or sound or sensation in the body. You know, it's really simple. It's never something other than six things that's happening. Our whole existence is simply made up of six things. Sounds being known, sights being known, smells and tastes being known. Did I say tactile experience? Yeah, tactile experience being known. And then the six, in Buddhism, the sixth sense gate is the mind being known. Thoughts, emotions, images in the mind are being known. And our whole existence, which seems very complicated, is really six things being known. That's it, right? Can our life be anything other than one of these six things or a combination of these six things being known? It's just six things being known. So we have this intention to be with the breath and to develop some continuity with the ordinary sensations of the breath that we can, in any moment, just notice one of those other six things. I mean, the breath is just the tactile, tactile experience of the belly rising and falling or the touching sensations here or some people feeling it in the chest, right? But sometimes something else is really predominant, maybe pain in the back or pain in the knee. And then you can let go of the breath and let that pain be the object of meditation for a while. And so we, we're trying to recognize what's predominant. And then the A stands for acceptance. So we recognize, we accept it. We don't act out. We just uh, understand, well, this is how it is now. This is the way experience is unfolding now. It's like this. The eye is to become more interested. So it's related to alertness. That instead of thinking that you're going to take your mind and go to whatever's predominant, whether it's to your breath or to the pain in the knee or to the emotion, wherever that might be, you know, in the mind, in the heart, Instead of with interest, feeling like you've got to go to it, it's more like we're opening up in the middle of it. 
So the awareness, in a sense, is right in the middle of the breath. So instead of thinking about yourself being up here, looking at the belly rising and falling, or looking at your nostrils with that touching sensation, the awareness is very fluid. It doesn't actually have a location. Now, out of habit, some of us at least, we place the location of awareness between our eyeballs or slightly behind our eyes. Because we're so visually oriented as a creature, we just assume that somehow there's an awareness headquarters, you know, somehow back by our optic nerves. But that's just a habit. That's actually, it's a thought that we, we kind of are, find very seductive. Actually, it's specific to Western culture, because if you ask, if you look at other cultures, that's not where they locate, some locate it in the heart, some other places, even in the body. But the point is, it's fluid. It could be anywhere. So we can train the awareness so that the experiences we're knowing the breath in the breath. The, the knowing is right in the experience of the belly or the chest or the nostrils, wherever you're feeling it. Or the knowing can be right in the middle of the pain. So if you're feeling the pain in the knee, it's like the awareness of the knee is in the knee. It's not over here looking down upon the knee. And, you know, just physiologically we know that's true because we're not feeling the knee over here. It's all happening in the mind, you know, whether you take a biological view of things or a spiritual view of things. It's all happening in the mind. It's not happening in the knee itself. Same with sounds. You know, we think, oh, that car sounds over there. No, it's here. (laughs) Right? Just like we think, oh, that memory, that's way back there in the past. It's not in the past. It's right here. Or the thought about the future is out there somewhere. No, it's right here. Everything is happening here in the mind. So you can have that thought with the breath, especially training, that you're feeling the breath in the breath, feeling the emotion in the emotion, feeling the pain in the pain. So it's like, in a sense of waking up right in the middle of whatever seems to be predominant in that moment. And of course, if we don't know what's predominant, we just come back to the breath. Just come back to the feeling of the body, feel the breath in the body. And the last thing I'll just remind us of is, um, I have to finish rain, don't I? Okay, let me go back there and then I'll, I'll remind us about something else. So recognize, accept, interest. Any guesses for the N for rain? If you haven't heard it before. Non-attachment or non-identification. So we recognize, we practice just accepting. So here, acceptance is a lot about refraining from reacting. So acceptance isn't so much a thing we do. It's more that we're reminding ourselves we don't have to react to whatever we're knowing in the moment. Like for the breath, like when we're watching or being present with the breath, acceptance means like just because I'm really intimate with the breath doesn't mean I need to control it. I could just let it come and go. And then um, interest is like that deeper listening. So there's a certain stillness with interest, like we're, we're being still right in the middle of the experience. Because if we were really interested in something, we get quiet. That's how we learn about something, if we're interested in it. We get quiet. We really listen. We relax and listen. 
Ah, it's like this. Pain is like this. Breathing in is like this. So that's really the quality of interest or investigation. It's more about letting the experience reveal itself. And then the more we let an experience reveal itself, it tends to um, trigger identification and attachment. You know, we either like it because it's pleasant or we dislike it because it's unpleasant or we don't think it matters because it's neutral. That's how we usually get identified or attached. So non-identification, non-attachment is just trusting that things are unfolding on their own. So we're seeing things with this kind of vast space of wisdom. This is the hardest thing to practice. It's more the inevitable result of insight as opposed to something we do. The more we see things clearly, the more we see that it's all happening on its own. And we just let pleasant things come and go. We let unpleasant things come and go. We let neutral things come and go. And this is really the fruit of deepening wisdom, is that we know how to let things come and go. So when it's a really miserable day outside, we don't spend the whole day resisting it. We just let the miserable day come and go. And when it's the most beautiful day and everything's going right, we don't cling to it wanting to last forever. We just allow that beautiful day to come and go. This is non-attachment. Recognition, seeing what's predominant, accepting it, not acting it out, becoming interested in it, allowing whatever we're looking at, whatever we're opening to, the breath, sensation, thought, emotion, allowing it to reveal itself. So awareness right in the middle of it. And recognizing how non-attachment, non-identification slowly, gradually deepens in practice. Years of practice. We become more equanimous, more able to just let things come and go, including our own response to life. So it's not about becoming a passive zombie and letting life just happen and we're like the beautiful doormat of the world on which life just does its thing. But part of what we're allowing to just unfold naturally is our personality. So we just notice how we get up and do things and get up and say things and refrain from saying things. So in a sense, the wisdom that we've cultivated over the years, we're giving it free reign. As imperfect as our wisdom might be, we're just allowing it to express itself. So when it's insufficient and we make mistakes, we allow that to happen, we see it, and we learn from it. That's actually the most efficient way to live, as opposed to things are unfolding. And on top of that, we create the superstructure of feeling like we got to do it right, which just gets in the way of being, of allowing our personality, our wisdom to do the best it can, is this fear that we're going to do it wrong or this great craving to do it right. So we, lear- we basically learn to get out of the way as a self-centered, fearful, uh, neurotic being. We learn to get out of the way. And so it's just then the more uh, the conditioned mind, so the personality doesn't go away, it actually is given more free reign. But there's a feedback mechanism so that the pure personality gets purified because we feel very directly immediately any sort of unskillfulness and any skillfulness. And so there's like that feedback loop. 
seeing when we do something unskillful, and because we're sensitive, we feel the effect of that unskillfulness, and that gets uprooted, that tendency to, you know, whatever it is that's unskillful, be jealous or be aggressive. It just gets weeded out, and the wholesome qualities just get reinforced through the process of being aware. We'll talk more about that on, on week six when we look at practice in daily life. But let's take some time now, stretch out our legs, and then we'll sit for about 30 minutes. So feel free to stand for a few seconds if you'd like. Make sure you have the cushion that feels good for your body. Finding a stable, comfortable posture for the body. Remember, the posture is the same thing with the mind. We want both a posture that supports brightness or alertness and a posture that supports comfort, stability, sense of release. And as a beautiful and simple ritual at the beginning of the sit, you may want to take three or four slow, deep breaths in and out. Use these easy breaths as a way of coming more fully into the experience of the body. It's like returning home after a busy day back to the body. And perhaps one more time, slow, full breath in and out. Whenever you're done, just allow the breath to continue on its own. Taking the time to recognize, in the most basic way, the body sitting. The body is like this now. Unconditional acceptance. Actually being interested, feeling the body in the body or opening to this 
dynamic experience of sensation. See, as the mind relaxes and becomes more interested, we can go beyond the ideas or images of the body just rest, at least for moments, in this great ocean of sensation that comes and goes, keeps changing. And of course, some of the sensations are pleasant, and some of the sensations in the body are unpleasant. And many of the sensations are neutral, so the mind's inclined to ignore those. If possible, noticing the movement of the breath in the body. <coughs> allowing the breath to come in, and allowing the breath to go out. Cultivating a continuity of attention, learning to receive the sensations of the breathing process, even if it feels controlled or tight, let go of any intention to control the breath. Just trust that the body will breathe on its own. Being willing to start over each time there's any wandering, any distraction.
taking a moment and just notice the quality of the mind or the mood. So if there's calmness, just notice that. Agitation, notice that. And then just return to the body, to the breath, moving in the body. And remember, you might wish to use a meditation word like in, out, or rising, falling, or calm, ease. This can support a greater continuity of attention.
if it's possible, follow through with the intention to connect and sustain attention with the breathing process. But when that's not possible, then simply look at what's predominant or what's in the way of being with the breath and let that be the object of meditation.
remember it can be quite powerful to name whatever resistance you notice or to name whatever it is that's in the way of being mindful with the breath. So in a loving, patient, gentle way, just acknowledging, ah, pain is like this. Worry is like this. Or acknowledge it as just worry, just judging mind, just this. time. You might want to stretch out your legs or stand. It's always nice not to rush after we've been sitting. So when you're at home, you can even, some people like to lie down right on the floor for a few minutes after they've been sitting. 
or just to relax in some way. And you're, you're basically just checking in, like, how was that, having just sat? Before I open it up to discussion, I just want to remind us that, because it's often confusing when we, sometimes when we think about Buddhism or Buddhist mindfulness practice, we can have this stereotypic idea that we're going beyond emotion into this pure place where no more anger, no, no more greed. But it's much more... Uh, kind of, uh, instead of being thrown about by our emotions, where there is anger, we get attached to it, we run with it, or there is greed, and we get attached and we run with it. It's more about allowing the emotions to do what emotions are meant to do, which is to move. So it is to feel the force of anger moving without needing to act it out. But we're not suppressing the anger either. We're, we're understanding anger is like this. And we're feeling it move. We're feeling the greed move. And the same with the wholesome emotions like love or um, compassion or joy or gratitude. These emotions, too, we're not holding on to. We're not acting out. We're just letting them move through the body and mind. That's the idea with emotions, is to just let them move without holding on or identifying with them. So this is the time when we get to check in with one another. It would be great to hear about what you're learning both at home and tonight's set, what's been difficult, how you're interpreting or working with the instructions in a way that makes sense given your experience, or any questions, of course, that you might have. So what comes to mind? Yeah, please say your names. Yeah, there's a real art to that. So seductive stories are seductive in the sense that we do uh, what we've always done with them. We proliferate. The mind just spins, one thought leading to another. And I think I mentioned in the previous week that there's this dance that goes on that drives the proliferation. So there's the content. We th you know, we have the image or the thoughts about what happened earlier today. And that content 
the mind in a way can't distinguish between the memory or the thought about something and the actual event. So when we think about it, we have a visceral effect much like we had at that time. So we're thinking or having an image, then there's the visceral content, and that feeling in the body that, you know, whatever tension in the body, it then causes the thoughts to be replayed or the image to come up again. And the image triggers the visceral feeling, and the visceral feeling triggers the images and thoughts, and back and forth like this, there's this dance, one triggering the other. And it will go forever until it gets so painful or exhausting. Which, you know, and then generally we just start, then we'll start judging ourselves, and we'll get in the same kind of feedback loop with that, you know, hating ourselves for being caught up, for obsessing. So the trick is, uh, whenever we're caught in some afflicted, afflictive mind state, the real trick or insight is to understand that the thoughts and images are much more seductive than the visceral feeling. So if you can, you, you, you don't want to react to the thought about what he said or what happened today or the image that you have because that creates its own reaction. To react creates a reaction. So we're not pushing that away. In a way, we're getting interested in how it feels. So one way to, the first step may be to acknowledge, oh, this is how it is right now. So you're just acknowledging being caught up in thought. Ah, being caught up in thought is like this. This is how it is right now. And when you say, this is how it is right now, you're going right to like, well, what does it feel like to be caught up in thought? Like, what's the mental heart tone or quality associated with these thoughts? You know, is the heart bound up? Is it heavy? Is there sadness? Is there a heat or agitation or anger? So you're kind of looking like, what's the emotion, the visceral quality associated with this content? That's the first step. To put your attention right there. And then when you can see that, you might need to name it to keep yourself from going right back to the thoughts. So you can just name it, oh, anger, this is anger, or this is irritation, this is, you know, or this is humiliation. And it's like this, humiliation, just humiliation, just this feeling of humiliation. And then <coughs> when you can get some stability, <coughs> some continuity, or just a simple presence with that, then you want to discern whether that emotion is pleasant or unpleasant. So in this case, probably unpleasant. So the unpleasantness of that emotion is something happening in the present moment, and that's your anchor. You want to look right at the unpleasantness of being caught up in this content. And now if the content continues to spin, don't worry about it. Right now, your job is to be mindful of what that feels like. So the emotion, and then from the emotion right to whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. You're looking right at the unpleasantness of it. Like, how do you know it's an afflictive state? Well, it hurts. Well, how do you know it hurts? Well, it hurts like this. So you look right at the pain of it. Maybe subtle, may not, maybe very obvious. And that has a tendency, because we're not in that feedback loop, now the visceral feeling is being met with mindfulness, not reactivity. Normally, when we're not being mindful, when we have that visceral pain, that painful emotion, 
we immediately recall the content that now we're just being mindful of it. So we're kind of cutting that feedback loop. So that's so. And then again, you could note this from the emotion like of humiliation. You can note pain. Ah, this is painful. This hurts. It's like this. It's just pain. It's just mental or emotional pain. And it's like this. So you're you're kind of encouraging the mind that knows, you know, this capacity to attend or to see or to know. We're just encouraging it to be intimate. That means being relaxed and alert. Or you can use the rain to recognize it, to accept it, to be interested in the pain, to not get identified with pain. This is really important with pain, to not be attached or identified to the pain. It's just pain. So you're seeing it as a kind of a natural, impersonal thing, this pain, this pain in the heart or whatever you're feeling it as. Now, of course, if we've got a lot of momentum to the thinking, the obsessing, we're likely to be drawn back into the content. But then we know we can very quickly, because now we know where that pain is, we can come right back to how this hurts right here, right now, and it's like this. And then, that kind, and then we're kind of grounded in the present moment not lost in the thoughts, but really present. I'm here fully in the present moment. And this is a very powerful mindfulness practice. So even though it's a wild ride, so to speak, it doesn't mean we're not learning deep, profound lessons. So never judge your sit by how peaceful or calm it is. Certainly, a peaceful, calm sit is really nice. There's no doubt about it. It's very pleasant. But in terms of insider learning, we can learn a lot more sometimes in this kind of sit than in a sit where the mind is really calm. So when the mind is really calm and the sit steady, just appreciate that as kind of a nice break. <laughs> but a lot of the time and a lot of the real insight comes when what we're being asked to be mindful of is more challenging. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot your name already, though. Arlen. Thanks, Arlen. Yes. I didn't think I was going to be able to drive because I thought I was going to faint, but by the time I got to the car, it was fine. You know, so there was something. And tonight, what I'm noticing is um, just uh, fidgeting, agitation. It's all physical. <coughs> but there's an itch here, mm-hmm. pain here. And but there's also your mind not liking it. <coughs> so you can notice that. Because... Re- Physical restlessness is one thing, but mental restlessness, or the mind not liking that physical irritation, that's another thing that we can notice. And if we don't notice it, we keep uh, practicing being mindful of something that's not predominant. What's really predominant is that there's anxiety. But see, some of these emotions are very pervasive. Like when we're sad, you know, not always, but generally sadness, you know, will have a more specific location. In a way, it's easier to notice as an emotion happening in the present moment. But a restlessness or more of a pervasive anxiety, it's sometimes harder to notice because it's like everywhere. It's like our whole space of the mind and body 
is agitated, is restless, is anxious. And so it doesn't feel like it's something happening. It's like who we are. But we can notice that. It's just that instead of taking the attention and going to one place, we're sort of opening up and we're kind of feeling the whole space, like the quality of the whole space of the mind and body. It's, you know, it's agitated, it's restless, it's anxious, and it's like this. And can this be okay? Can I, for now I'm recognizing, can I accept it? If I can accept it, can I actually be interested in it? You know, like allowing it to reveal itself. What is restlessness when we don't try to control it? What is that experience? Can I be free of attachment or identification, like feeling the restlessness or the anxiety as a natural force? Just like if we were in the middle of a storm, you know, we wouldn't take it personally. We'd have a sense of wonder and awe. And now it's just like an internal storm. And in general, the, this image of weather systems is very useful in uh, relating to our inner states. Because, you know, we can, in a diluted way, we can get very reactive to the different weather systems that arise during the week. But, you know, if we are a little bit thoughtful, we realize how silly it is. You know, weather is just weather. It's just doing its thing. Well, we can have that same relationship to our internal states, too. Things get triggered, and we're depressed. Other things get triggered, and we're feeling really happy. And then other things get triggered and we're full of shame and humiliation. And then other things get triggered and we have this deep, profound compassion and tenderness for all living beings, you know. And then something else gets triggered. And uh, we, th we uh, have been trained to take these mind states, these emotions, very personally. But it's just a habit to take it personally. It's not inevitable. We don't need to take our mind state so personally. And mindfulness will really help creating more space in our relationships, our relationship to our mind states. Now it's like this. Now it's like that. And we don't freak out so much. And then when we have some more stability, we notice something very powerful. For example, if we have a lot of craving, wanting to be home in bed or, you know, whatever, then if we're being mindful, we'll notice the craving arising and we'll notice it, we'll give it space to reveal itself. We'll notice how powerful, even something like, like for example, in sitting, one of the classics is the desire to want to move or the, even better, the desire to want to scratch an itch, right? You got a tickle or an itch and there you are sitting and the desire can be as big as Mount Everest. You know, it starts small, but because we're not acting it out, we're practicing accepting it, we recognize there's an itch, we feel the craving, we recognize the craving, and we accept the itch and we accept the craving. And then we get interested in it, and as we're getting interested in it, it feels, my God, it's going to be, it's the whole universe, is the, is the itch and the desire to scratch it. I mean, it's amazing how powerful it is. And, but if we can stay mindful without attachment or identification, we see that the desire grows and grows and grows and then it dissipates and it falls away. And the desire goes away without us having to scratch the scratch. How many strong, lustful desires have we had and they come and go? Now, I know some of them we maybe have acted on, but a lot of them we haven't acted on. And where are they now? 
So strong emotions come and go on their own. Some of us have been extremely depressed, and now we're not. Extremely sad, and now we're not. Extremely happy, and now we're not. Emotions come and go on their own. And this is such a powerful thing because when we're on the upside of an emotion, it feels like I've got to do something. I have to get identified and act this out in order to avoid this sort of like exploding or taking over my life. But we don't. We can understand that everything in the universe arises and passes away on its own. Our thoughts come and go on, its, on their own. The emotions come and go. Sensations come and go. Everything arises and passes. And this gives us a lot of confidence in our mindfulness practice. Uh, confidence in being patient. A kind of a wise patient, not like a grit. I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna let this itch get to me. But more of like a, a why, like just curious, like how big is this this desire to scratch the itch gonna get? Knowing that it's not gonna kill us. How strong is this anger? You know, we see how big anger gets, and we just don't take it personally. We just let it be this big brooding storm, and then maybe it thrashes us around. And we practice being porous or empty to all the movement not resisting the movement. We resist the movement when we take it personally. But we just let everything move. I'm sure you've had that experience in your interactions with other people, especially parents learn this. Otherwise, they don't survive. I was a school teacher for a number of years, so even though I'm not a parent, I, I got a little bit of the education parents get. So when you're with a child tantruming, you know, and basically hating you to death, <laughs> Now, if you take those words personally, you're really going to get thrown around by the words. But if you can be there with this wide, spacious understanding that this kid is freaking out, he or she will say whatever they can imagine to say to try to hurt me, you know, it's just causes and conditions expressing themselves. And if I don't react after a certain amount of time, this storm on its own will dissipate, right? But, you know, if we take it personally, it's like there's an old meditation story about, you know, the guy knocking on the door and, you know, and somebody says, you idiot. <laughs> you know, the guy goes, what do you mean you idiot? You know, he starts pounding on the door and, well, it's a parrot, you know, but we could totally freak out thinking that someone's talking to us. We take it personally. You know, I'm not an idiot. Well, if you're not an idiot, why does it matter if, somebody is calling you an idiot, whether it's a human being or a parrot. But because we take it personally, we react. And so we're doing this all the time, not just externally, but internally. So it's really great practice, especially the sitting still, as much as you can, in a relaxed way, and setting a time, and then really agreeing with yourself. So when you choose the time you're going to sit, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. When you choose the amount of time, make sure it's reasonable so that no matter what thought comes up, you're, you're really going to stick to your commitment. And like I think I mentioned one of the first two weeks, it's nice to have a kitchen timer and then wrap it up so it's not so loud like in a towel and then put it away so you're not going to be tempted to look at it. 
don't have your watch in front at first because you just keep looking. Most people just keep looking. And it's better not to. It's better just to say, I can completely, fully trust that that kitchen timer will go off. <laughs> and did I mention you can get a meditation timer? Uh, if you just Google meditation timer, you'll, you'll get some um, options. Mm -hmm. Well, like, so you don't have to worry about how long you're sitting. So you decide, okay, today I have enough time, I can sit for 30 minutes. Then you set the timer for 30 minutes. And then, even if it feels like you've been there for four years, and sometimes it feels like you've been there a long time, you know you haven't been there for four years because the timer hasn't gone off. So you're. Uh, most people might find it useful, but I think not everybody needs it. I said not everybody would need it. Yeah. But the nice thing about a timer for most people in the beginning is the tendency is to want to cut it short. So it's better to make a reasonable commitment, you know, given your schedule that day, and then just stick to it. It's a certain discipline. We're training the mind to be disciplined. Like this is a the the sitting practice is medicine. Sometimes it is very pleasant and healing. But a lot of times, it's healing, but not pleasant. And so we don't want to take the medicine. So it's nice to create a discipline. Like, you know, I just put in my 30 minutes every day. Or in my case, you know, I try to put in an hour and a half every morning or two hours every morning, no matter what. And it's just, that's my discipline. And I've been doing it for a long, long time now. And, uh, and it really, for me, has paid off just to put in that time. So I recommend that if, unless you have kind of a, a natural kind of clock where you know what's the appropriate time, so you're not distracted by thinking, is this long enough or should I sit some more? If that's not distracting you, then you may not need it. Yeah, what else you know? Yes. Thank you, Jim. Uh, just follow up on that. How long do you, like for a beginner, how long do you suggest being set as a goal for sitting each day? Well, I'll say 20 minutes as a minimum, but if you can only sit for five minutes, then sit for five minutes. But 20 minutes is a nice minimum because a lot of us, it takes some time for the mind to settle down. And, it's, and with 20 minutes, there's time for many cycles, like where you calm down, and then the mind gets agitated, then it calms down, and then it gets agitated, and then it calms down. You get a little continuity with the breath, and then it's lost. And, and it's nice to see that cycle so you don't take it so personally. And you just keep, you realize the practice is about starting over. But ideally, you know, 40 minutes would be wonderful. Even if you have to, for, if you're not used to sitting still that long, you might need to adjust your posture once or twice during that time. And just make that part of the meditation where you, once the pain gets strong enough, you might need to move the attention from the breath to the painful sensations. But then at some point, you can't even be mindful with the painful sensations. You're just reacting to them. And then at that point, when all the, all the mindfulness of the pain is doing is getting the body really tight, then stretch out the leg or stand up for a minute or two or make the adjustments you need to make to relieve the tension and then settle back again into sitting posture. Or some people will sit on the floor and then somewhere in the middle of the sit, they go to a chair for the last half for example. So if you've got the time to put in 40 minutes or even an hour, 
great, or twice a day, a half an hour twice a day. But most of us have, are, are overscheduled. <laughs> but 20 minutes as a minimum would be great if you could do that most days, if not every day. Especially to give yourself a sense of whether this practice would be really useful for you. Did somebody else have their hand up back there? Yes. yes. Uh, BJ. BJ? Yeah. 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 Well, are you not getting enough sleep at night? Okay. So, and then you feel that's enough for you, given the stress and stuff in your life. So, then it might be. Uh, and you're feeling tranquility in the practice itself? Most of the time. And, and so not every set am I feeling dominant, but more than 50% of the sets. Mm -hmm. Even some of them, when they're really tranquil, I'll be like, oh, I just go back up. Yeah. You know? And it's still great, but I'm not sure that that's what I'm supposed to get out. <laughs> well, it's one of the skills to know how to calm the mind down, even if it means calming it down into unconsciousness is a really great skill. I mean, if that's all we learned in life, that's a lot more than other people, a lot of people learn. It's like how to let go of the world. Because to become calm, you got to let go of the world. You can't be thinking about whether Sarah Palin will make a good president and calm down. Or, I'm not saying I'm poor against you, I'm just saying you can't be thinking about politics and calm down. It doesn't work. So it's, it is a great skill, but in terms of what we're trying to do, is the, it's more than just learning to calm down. As wonderful of, of a skill as that is, a lot of people would be very happy to know how to just let go of everything for a few minutes. <laughs> well, to some degree it is, because if you're feeling that relaxation and that kind of movement towards unconsciousness, then you've got to be letting go to some degree. At least you're letting go of what's agitating. Because otherwise, the agitating things would energize the mind. You know, Anger and craving tend to energize the mind. You know, the different flavors of those things, fear. So what you need to do, you don't want to use those things to agitate your mind. I used to drive a long time when uh, I did a lot of backpacking in my early 20s. I lived out in California. And I'd often go by myself, and I'd, I'd always get sleepy driving. And I realized, well, if I, if I have lustful thoughts, my mind got really energized. You know, if I think about the people I don't like, my mind would get really energized, and I wouldn't get in a car accident. But we don't want to do that, of course, because that's not what we want to reinforce. So how can you bring energy in the mind without using agitated thinking, agitated mind states. And uh, it's a real art. So there's some basic things to do, which is to activate more of the senses. So you could open your eyes, for example. That's one thing to do. But the basic principle is to make your mind work in a way that's not agitating. Give your mind something to do. So instead of noticing the breath generally, Get very interested 
interested in noticing more and more of the details of the breath. And, and make your mind note what you're noticing. So you're actually using words, you're kind of labeling everything you're noticing, which is a big pain in the butt, but it makes your mind work so it's energizing. So in the same way, if you're one of those people who, who tends to be hypervigilant and agitated and restless, you may want to practice not mental noting because it may be increasing the agitation in your mind. And you may want a more spacious, general uh, awareness of the breath instead of like wanting to see every detail. You can just see if that helps if you're agitated. So just different ways of making your mind work. How can you bring in more interest without agitating the mind? Like getting curious or interested. And including interested in the quality of sleepiness as it develops, if that's what's really predominant. See if you can pick it apart. So you're deconstructing the experience. Like, where do you feel sleepiness in your body? How does it feel in the eyes? How does it feel in the chest? What's the feeling in the mind? You know, what are the qualities? Do you get that styrofoam feeling? Is it a heavy or a light feeling? Is it a tingling? So you're just kind of getting very curious, even if you go on to sleep, to sort of maintain that curiosity, that interest in the experience. And if you, especially if you make yourself name what you're noticing, that can help. And then the last trick, of course, is just to do your practice standing up. It's less likely you're going conscious standing up. And if standing is a fine posture for meditation, so don't feel like you're somehow doing the second best thing. Mm-hmm. Casey. Um, this is just kind of a follow-up to that. I've struggled with sleeping or falling asleep, and, and I don't always get enough sleep. Work and stress and things on. But I found that certainly not on a weekday, but it's a weekend. Sometimes I feel like I can take a nap ahead of time, like just a 20-minute power nap, and then it's much less likely to get fall asleep during meditation. It's just yeah, not a big, you know, test of time. Well, the thing is, actually doing these things tends to make us more efficient, not less, in terms of all this stuff we have to do. So that's what I was basically pointing to at the beginning about it. It is very useful to have that skill. And so you might lie down, calm the body down. And there's, there's a, a point, if you really want to learn how to do a power nap, really pay attention to the experience of relaxation when you're lying on your back. And just follow that, the pleasantness. Just like I was saying to Ar- Arlen about how we go from the content to the emotion to the pleasantness or unpleasantness. So same thing. If you're feeling um, like relaxed and happy that you're lying down after a busy day, put your attention right on the pleasantness of that. And in a way, you're absorbing your mind into that pleasantness. And you might find that you just sort of ride it right into a moment of deep sleep. So deep sleep as opposed to dream state. Now, that doesn't mean you won't pass through a dream or kind of a trance-like state, but you can train your mind to go right to unconsciousness, right to deep sleep, and then bounce out. And it takes, you know, depending on the day and your kind of mind, anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes. And you can get a real... Real, uh, a real vacation, a real rest, very quickly. 
And so what Casey's recommending can be quite useful. It's useful whether or not you meditate afterward just to develop the skill. And I'll talk more about this on week six because it's just a good daily life practice to actually train yourself to be really good at relaxation, at letting go of the world. And using the Savasana yoga pose, some of you probably have taken a yoga class, so you're lying on your back with your legs apart, arms off to the side, usually palms up. And most people need a little pillow for the back of their head to create a nice alignment for the spine. And it's better not to do it on a bed, but on a, a, like a piece of carpeting or yoga mat. So now I want to just say one thing about the uh, handout tonight. If you didn't pick it up, you can get it on your way out. There's uh, some instructions for walking practice, and it would be really nice to give it a shot this week. So to make a commitment once this week to do some mindful walking practice. And the instructions are very clear from a well-known teacher, Gil Fransdell, so you can read through them. But uh, for most of us, it means finding like a hallway space. It's nice if the space isn't too cluttered. So if you've got a nice big living room, you know, that might work for you. But for a lot of people, it might mean outside if you have a private backyard or a hallway. If you can have, you know, 15 to 20 paces, that would be ideal if you've got that much room. And just start walking at a normal pace. And then as you feel more relaxed, just let the pace, the speed slow down. And Gil gives very specific instructions, so you can just read through that to get, to get the instructions. Okay? And next week, uh, we'll be looking at obstacles to practice. And especially the five that I've mentioned at different times. And this would be really good in your daily practice to notice all the different flavors of aversion, which includes boredom and fear and hatred, right? Irritation. All the different flavors of craving, wanting things to be other than they are. All the different forms of too much energy, like restlessness. All the different experiences of too little energy and doubt. So thinking about why it's not working is doubt. These are what the Buddha calls the five hindrances to meditation. And you can just basically put all the things that are frustrating in one of these five categories. It's either a form of aversion, craving, too much energy, too little energy, doubt in the mind. Okay? So see if you can learn about each of these five things. Catch, clearly see. And this is where you can use this uh, set of five things as a, like a handy list to note when you're getting frustrated. You, so you're just going, so is it aversion? Is it some kind of aversive state? Craving? Wanting things to be other? Doubt? Am I doing it wrong? Why can't I do it right? Too much energy, too little energy. And that will help you put a frame around it. Oh, it's this. This is what's going on. So it's really nice to have a list of things that can frustrate our practice so we can more quickly just look at it. Oh, this is what's going on. So have a good week of practice. Do the best you can. Accept what you end up doing, and I'll see you next week. If you have some time to bring the bring the. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.